Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So I figured this morning we could talk through uh, Lent in light of the fact that it's coming up here soon. And that could be uh, seemingly boring to many if they have no interest. But someone like myself may uh, may want some, some advice, and, and I'll say it this way. Um, so coming from a very non-traditional background, uh, I, I don't have much experience with Lent. And traditionally, I've just kind of viewed Lent as something that Catholics would do, and um, th- I didn't see a lot of meaning behind it. As I've matured, I've, I've become to see a lot more deeper meaning, but I'm still very unfamiliar with it, and I think the common practice in the non-denominational evangelical is if, if you're going to practice Lent, it's um, pick something to give up for 40 days or do a devotional for 40 days. And I think those are, those are great practices, but I've been drawn personally to something I think a little bit more traditional. I don't want to just go reinvent the wheel. I've, I've thought, well, okay, I could, I could come up with some things. Um, but but is there more of a uh, maybe a traditional or meaningful approach that would be helpful? So I was just curious your background, um, what it is with Lent, and maybe we could simply start with how your journey has progressed with Lent. Yeah, for me as a a young lad, I was raised in a church with thick liturgical practices, including Lent. And so all Lent meant for me was no chocolate and no dessert for 40 freaking days. And so, yay, that was fun. Uh, I didn't, uh, at least in, in my upbringing, we didn't start with why. We started with how. How are we going to do this? And here's what we're going to do. No dessert. Which, since my mom didn't like to cook, she enjoyed Lent. <laughs> Perfect. And in fact, here's a little side, by the way. I was a young lad. I, I did learn how to bake. And it, it was the day, it was sometime, probably was about Lent. And I said, when we can have dessert again, we still don't have much dessert. And she said, you want dessert, you make it. And so I gotcha. began, yeah, I learned how to make pies and cakes, and whatever, but not during Lent. So Lent for me was no chocolate, no dessert. And that was it. So it was very, very deeply spiritually moving. And then uh, <laughs> Easter was less about uh, Jesus rising from the dead. It was more of uh, bounding down the stairs to the big Easter basket where I devoured two chocolate bunny ears right away. I mean, we mangled the, the bunny. And uh, then with our sugar buzz, uh, we, were, we had breakfast after that. And that was Lent. So no surprise that as soon as I was, well, we sort of left the church anyway sometime uh, in my middle school years. And then uh, when I came to faith, uh, the traditions I was in, I often call them the warehouse church movements or what have you, didn't mention Lent. So Lent was gone for a long, long time in my life, and it wasn't until I uh, started to come, I sort of just felt the emptiness of the, uh, of the lack of uh, any understandings of deeper liturgical rhythms, and so began to observe them. But Lent didn't make sense to me, or begin to until I began to practice the spiritual disciplines. That would have been a quarter century ago. And so until someone is schooled and then um, well-versed and practiced in the spiritual disciplines of silence, solitude, and fasting, uh, Lent isn't going to make much sense. Yeah, I resonate with that. As as I started to to practice more spiritual disciplines, 
that void that you mentioned, that sort of emptiness for the Lenten season started to, to grow. That's right. And so it's a twofold. So first of all, Lent makes sense when you understand a bit about uh, how we're designed in human nature. So it has one aspect that, that what I like about what James K.A. Smith is doing in his work. Smith has a, I think it's a correct point. He says, your anthropology largely determines your theology. And I think uh, Christopher West's work would say the same, his most recent book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story. So once we understand human nature and how our bodies are made, that very much shapes how we understand the gospel, discipleship. So having said that, I was first introduced to the spiritual disciplines in a, in a meaningful way uh, through Dallas Willard. And a lot of people are familiar with uh, Dallas Willard's work. I do find it fascinating. This is, this is kind of a tip-off pad into why Lent is very thin in the uh, sort of the evangelical tradition. Uh, Willard's book is uh, called The Spirit of the Disciplines. Now that's kind of a, a scholarly way to say why the disciplines. And I found, generally speaking, that most evangelicals tell me, ah, it was a hard book, I didn't get it. And the books that really do sell are the how-to books. Here's how to do the disciplines, here's how to do the disciplines. But Willard was starting with, but why the disciplines? And uh, it, it, that kind of tips you off into part of our problem is we're familiar with what is Lent. It's 40 days of fasting. How do you do that? You don't eat chocolate. You don't eat dessert. But why do you do that? I don't know. Some old musty church practice from way back. It doesn't really have any payoff, so we don't do it. I mean, if Lent offered you, you had a million dollars after 40 days if you didn't eat chocolate and dessert, we'd be practicing Lent. <laughs> so there was, uh, it was the um, understanding of first human nature. And then second, it was very much growing into this marital view of the gospel and salvation that we're, that we're being saved in addition to having been saved, and we are preparing to be a prepared bride. And Lent fits into that. We can talk about that. But those are the two things that began to have Lent make sense. Most people don't even know, the, the word basically means, it comes from the English word meaning spring season. And, uh, so what developed in the church liturgies is the spring was a good time to prepare for the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now here's, here's what I mean by the connection between the two. Augustine said the cross is the marital our salvation, our betrothal to Christ is in the marital bed of the cross. That is, on the cross, Christ not only died for our sins, but it's when we were betrothed, it's where in the pictures from the Old Testament, the Redeemer marries his betrothed. So Lent is preparation for being a worthy bride. Now, worthy doesn't mean that we work off our sins. That's not the point. It means that um, it is part and parcel with being a pure, prepared, um, even pictured in the Old Testament as a deer pants for the water brooks, uh, a bride that pants for her husband. And Lent fits into all that. So, because Christ spent 40 days in the wilderness, it was selected as a 40 days of fasting, which is a discipline in this regard, Pat. 
So we get up every morning, most people, and we have breakfast. And what is breakfast? A meal. Dude, uh, a meal. I was like, you know, I didn't ask you the name of your best friend. <laughs> well, just break it apart. It's two words. Oh, you break the fast. Sure. That's right. So the day begins when you're when the sun goes down. Evening, morning, a day. Genesis. The day begins generally for people when your head hits the pillow. And you, God has designed the human body in the day that you do fast, but you're fasting not of your own volition. Unless you've come up with some sort of way that you can actually chew and eat and eat a burger while you're asleep. Now, let's hope they never invent that. Teenage boys would just gain so much weight. So you, and so in the morning... This is, this is, by the way, how the Christian tradition changed the public world for 1,500 years up until the Enlightenment. Not just a private, personal relationship with Jesus, but changed the very structure of the public world. Because, and Judaism too, because it was, it's considered worldwide. Break fast. You break the fast. Well, you have to have a day that begins in the morning. I mean, it begins in the evening, rather. And God gives to his beloved in their, in their sleep. So we do have food at that time that we know not of. Jesus mentions that. And then we wake up and we break the fast. So what, what Lent does is it takes it, which, which is a natural bodily rhythm, and tries to groove it deeper into your body and into your soul. And it is actually fasting is preparing for feasting. Mm. So what you were just saying there is as I, as I go to sleep, we, we know there was evening and there was morning the first day. So uh, in other words, a, a, uh, a day itself starts in the evening and as I go to sleep, I am really fasting during that time. I'm not obviously intaking food. And that is preparing my body, in a way, for me to wake up and have breakfast or break the fast. And in the same way, Lent is just a longer version of that where we, in preparation for the feast, the big celebration of, of Easter, we we have that same rhythm, just more drawn out. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yes. Hmm. Remember that when uh, Jesus' disciples came to him and they come in from town, they were coming back from Taco Bell and, and he had that conversation with the woman of the well. And <clears throat> so they're just, um, you know, they're having kind of the post Taco Bell blues. You, you know that feeling. I've seen <laughs> too many nachos. <laughs> but uh, you realize, man, oh, man, we haven't seen Jesus eat. So, you know, they mentioned, by the way, uh, you must be hungry. You haven't anything to eat. He says, well, I have food that you don't yet know anything about. Hmm. So while you sleep, the psalmist writes, he gives to his beloved, even in their sleep. And he gives what is often, what um, I'm reluctant to use this phrase because it gets so butchered, but it is spiritual food. Now, when we say that, people think Hallmark cards and kind of some kind of fairy dust. And I mean, it is in the land of fairies and what have you, in the best sense of that word, like Tolkien and T.S. Eliot talked about it. But it, it's food that because we are porous, P-O-R-O-U-S, porous, permeable beings, where we are physical, spiritual, and they, it just it just wafts through us all the time that this food even though it's called spiritual food is very real and it sustains us and it nourishes us but we do wake up ready to break the fast if we sleep well with actual physical food but even that physical food in a sacramentalist view 
is sacred. It's spiritual. So even a taco from Taco Bell is spiritual. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm just a... I went through the Taco Bell phrase, phase myself, man. <laughs> but I've come out of it. <laughs> now, what this means is um, that that the, the 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 disciplines. Well, first of all, back to sleep. So it's fascinating. I've been reading a couple of years ago some of the neuroscience on um, what happens in sleep, amongst other things. Now, this is happening on an unconscious level. You're not staying up to have this happen. But the brain sort of sifts through the stacks and stacks of papers that just cluttered your mind during the day. I mean, you took in millions of bits of information and sort of sorts them out, trashes some stuff, deletes a lot of it, um, uh, but then it, it sort of collates into often it's considered up to like four kind of four substantive things. Ideas, you want to call them that, or images. Actually, they're more often images. I have found over the last, especially over the last 10, 15 years of my life, that if I practice the disciplines, and hold to this more ancient view of the gospel of God marrying us and get good rest that I'll wake up and I have two, three sort of collated, fresh, concise images or ideas. I mean, I wake up and I have the last couple of nights. And one time it was 2.30 in the morning, which tells you God is no respecter of the 24-hour day. <laughs> but it was like, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's what I was, yeah. As you know, Pat and I, you know, Pat, uh, for listeners, Pat and I and the team have been working on sort of depicting what it is our work does. And a couple mornings ago, 2.30 in the morning, I woke up and there it was, I saw it. I saw, sorry, ran over and grabbed the legal pad and sketched it out. Now, this isn't uh, Mike Metzger's freak of nature. There's actually stories all through history of people either being awakened or waking up and going, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's it. It's also known if you don't write it down, it's like dreams. What's been your experience with dreams? Mm, yeah, they're hard to remember. Yeah, it's like the sun comes up and they like the dew on the grass. I like what you're saying there because it's um, there, there is a, a physical, a practical side to fasting, sure, but that's not all, all you're saying. And so I, I really like your point about just the world being more porous, spiritual, physical, they're not as separate as we like to put them. And so what you're saying there is, there is a, a very real sense that fasting has a, a physical impact on your body and your mind, and those are good things. And you're also saying they're not the only things, and so there's an importance there. And I'm drawn to that when I hear of things like intermittent fasting, which is, is more of a kind of very quote-unquote secular practice today and doesn't really have a spiritual element. But you hear a lot of the benefits of intermittent fasting, and I hear that, and I'm like, Oh, that's fantastic. They finally just started practicing a spiritual discipline. And they just don't know it. You know, like there is a, a, a physical side to fasting. They're gaining some of the benefit. And that's, that's really cool to see science catching up with scripture that there is benefit to fasting. So yeah. you're saying yeah. there's both. It's not just one or the other. Yes, that's right. It's a both. And, and, um, and I, I love how you phrased it a moment ago. It's exactly right. But it's exactly wrong the way Americans use it. That's um, what I mean. So you said, I like this because it has a, uh, has a physical, practical right, right. aspect. And I go, you know, that's right. It's, it's, it's absolutely right. But not the way Americans use the word practical. Sure. So something is practical because it, it manifests itself in 
practices. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're talking about. So you're absolutely right. I know my English friends always, you know, take digs at us as, as Americans. Everything's got to be practical. And as they understand the word, which I think is better, and so do Europeans, uh, I probably everyone everywhere else in the world except America, because even if you um, make a call to your doctor, I mean, when you walk in, he's, he describes his office, his business as what? A practice. There you go. And um, so practice also denotes we aren't perfect. Now, I'm not using that phrase in the way Americans use it, too. They use it as a slough off from any sort of granular review of their work. So I often think, you know, I've done low consulting for some churches. And man, if I hear it once, I've heard it a dozen times. You begin to talk about some of the nuances. They go, well, you know, we're not saying we're perfect. <laughs> Which is a way of saying, let's end this conversation. Mm. And, um, but practices understand it better that we, this has got to be something that we can attend to the more important things by not having to attend to everything. And hence an attending physician knows how to sort through all the spectrum of symptoms and data coming in when you walk in, Pat, with something that you can't put your finger on and attend to hopefully the right problem and solve it. So that comes through a practice which is requires some disciplines. And a discipline is something that once you are disciplined is easy to easier to sustain. But the uh, the acquiring of it are what are called spiritual disciplines. And the acquiring of them is where we lose you lose ninety nine percent of people because as you well know, then we've told listeners, I mean Pat could run through a wall, I mean build like a brick house. I'm kidding. But you do work out. But a lot of people would say, Well, I wish I was that strong. And they say, Well, wish means I want it for nothing. I wish I could play piano. Generally, generally agree there's one way to learn how to play the piano. Discipline yourself to learn how to play the piano. And so, hence we read Paul writing, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So you can be a Christian, not be very godly. Mm. I mean, that's the book of my life. Mm. And... Um, so discipline means is a Greek word where we get our word gymnasium. Sure. Yeah. No, that makes makes a lot of sense. In in thinking about Lent, the difference between just you know, practicing disciplines throughout your life and specifically the season of Lent, what I heard you say that I think is a little bit different than I've thought about before is not necessarily viewing the Lenten season as this special season so much as the Easter feast being this really special event and Lent is a way to prepare for that and really almost to physically heighten Easter. It's a way to remind my, my body, my spirit that Easter is approaching. And so I'm practicing a discipline in preparation for that. Is, is that kind of what you're saying there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it fits into what we have discussed before that, Salvation is depicted in three tenses in uh, Scripture. Often, I've heard some of my uh, friends from a certain tradition say, no, it's sanctification. And I said, no, it says right here, we're being saved. Sanctification is a different word. I know they overlap, but you're confusing categories here. Uh, We have been saved, we're being saved, and we'll be saved. And again, time is just a moving picture of eternity where there is no time, where we are Jesus' bride. And so we, in 
in the Jewish tradition, marriage has three tenses. You are betrothed, then the one-year period of preparation. But when you're betrothed, you are married. So Joseph was the husband of Mary, but they were apart for a year. Joseph was preparing a place for them to live. Mary was preparing herself to be what's considered, you know, presented as a pure virgin. That's what Paul, the language he uses. And then they come together for the wedding feast. Now, I grant you that when you live in time, you go, well, what came first? And in eternity, that's, that's what he's saying. So when did God begin? He's always been. Well, what was before he always been? Right. So what you have is the limitations of our finitude to understand what Paul said is the mystery of this marriage. But if you look at salvation, it depicts the mystery that it is we have been saved, but we're being saved, and we will be saved. And the cup of joy in will be saved is largely determined by how well we are being saved. So having been saved is when we are married, betrothed. Being saved is pre preparation for our presentation when Christ comes for his bride. And so Lent is part of the preparation, and hence it comes before the marriage bed of the cross, Easter, to symbolize, just as, think of here's another layer, before Christ goes public, so to say, to begin his three years of public ministry, offering the availability of this marriage, he spends 40 days in the wilderness, and it is a preparation for public ministry. Because again, in, in it says he is the begotten son, that is not created, but begotten, generated in the flesh. That's where we get our word gender. And as he is generated, it said he learned obedience. So here's the perfect God, perfect man, learning, training his body. Because what I gained from Dallas Willard that was very helpful, and we've talked about it before, is your body right now at this moment, Pat, it's not neutral, never has been. It's either an ally or an enemy of what you intend to do. This is the the great failing of what's called pietism. Pietism is the assumption that if I have the Bible, God, and the Holy Spirit in me, I can be holy. Over here, Paul says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It requires more than just God, God's Spirit in you, and the Bible. They're essential, they're necessary. Can't be godly without them. But you can't be godly if you don't train your body. And this is part of the preparation. And it also, if I might add, is rightly understanding passion. Mm. Well, is that is, is passion a topic for another day, or is that something you wanna you want to just hint at here and rightly understand. Well, it. we'll touch on it because it's it's a it's I think is a notion that I get nowhere with with my friends because passion become an, became an unalloyed good some 30, 40 years ago. When I first came to faith, I never heard this about passion. Now there are huge mega conferences called passion. Everybody's passionate. Novartis is passion and passion and so is Lexus and just every, Madison Avenue is just taking this thing and when Christians say, oh, no, the culture is out there. No, it isn't. It's the water going through our gills, too. We picked up the very same language. Passion means extreme suffering. Go to a passion conference. Is that what you hear? 
<laughs> I don't think so. No, it, it means there's one time in the Bible, one time, when it's referred to it in a positive way. Apostle Paul said, if you can't control your sexual arousal, that passion, get married. Now, he, there's no judgment either way. Few people can actually control it in such a way, discipline in such a way that you save yourself for the best, best sex ever in eternity at the marriage bed. But he's making no judgment either way. In fact, if everyone was not married and controlled, that we the human population would end in one generation. So I think it's he's making no judgment. But the fact of the matter is passion rightly understood here in in the marriage bed of for Kathy and I is a signal of transcendence. It is a taste of eternity. It is so intense that if it went longer than it does, it would become unbearable suffering. And so it's a taste of eternity. Time stops at climax. You're not aware of it anyway, but you can't live that way. Now, every other reference in passion is animalistic. The donkey sort of snorts in heat and passion. And uh, so it was generally understood in traditions to take the marriage view of the gospel that it's impossible to be passionate about all these things that everybody says they're passionate about. You literally would just be unbearable suffering. That's why in the, the week before, the last week of Lent, is called what, by the way? In the historic church calendar. Is that Holy Week? Passion Week. Oh. If you're familiar with Passion Week, in the crude way, but Christ gets the crap beat out of him. He suffers. Is that what you imagine when you talk about, I'm really passionate about this? No. So you're suffering over it. How are you suffering? Now, in this regard, there is minor suffering that prepares us for the feast. And when you first begin to fast, it is suffering. My first fast in college, I don't know why, gave it a whirl for 24 hours, was abysmal. And I ended it at midnight, like on a Thursday night, and at 12.01 a.m., my head is deep in the fridge devouring every last bit of food I can find. I am so glad that freaking fast is over. Who put me up to that thing? <laughs> and all I could do throughout the day was everywhere I go, my radar is pinging every bit of food all around me. I'll never forget my first fast. I was filling up my car. I was in college, filling up my car with gas. And all I can see in the service station is candy bars and bags of chips. <laughs> I can't have any of it. That's not what we're talking about with fasting. So fasting is this aspect, this mysterious aspect that Paul alludes to in Colossians 1, chapter 1, verse 27. Listeners, if you want to meditate on just one thing after this, meditate on that passage. And of course, now Pat knows the Bible. He's memorized the whole thing. So <laughs> uh, I, I haven't either. In fact, I tell people I'm terrible these days at Bible trivia. Someone says, you know, what, is a, uh, what does Psalm 34, 7 say? I don't know. I know, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Well, that's Psalm 34-7. Oh, okay, what luck, as Calvin would say. Um, <clears throat> but I, I digress. Colossians one twenty seven. We are privileged, if you're 
his bride. His bride is privileged to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What's that mean? <laughs> I think I've I've heard several different <laughs> several different take, takes on that, and often it's avoided. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's more. It's very much. Uh, it is. Uh, maybe it's controversial. Um, maybe you know we'll stand before the Lord or Peter or whoever he sends his emissary and goes, "Man, you guys are freaking nuts on that one." Um, <laughs> I like how Dallas Willard put it. Grace means you don't have to get it all right. The best that the, the best shoulders that I think I sit on to see this is that the sufferings of Christ at the cross are 100% sufficient for us to have been saved. but they are not 100% sufficient for us to be being saved or to be preparing for our wedding night. So for two to become one, we are privileged to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Lent prepares our body to receive whatever comes to us in the way of suffering so that we can be a prepared bride having filled up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. So we have talked a lot about the why. I think we've captured that pretty well. Um, are there... Are there specific what's that either you practice that you find helpful or just practices you might recommend uh, for others, such as myself, who I think are, are feeling a, a deeper draw to this and um, are looking for, for ways to practice it well? That is a very good question and nothing original here. Uh, I defer to those who are far more seasoned than myself, and I believe uh, to consistently, regularly, weekly, even daily for moments, practice silence, solitude, and then fasting, but in that order. And I would recommend to you The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. But those would be the, uh, the three. Now, Willard will lay out for you historically there was Half of the disciplines were disciplines of abstinence, what's called, I call them, pulling the plug on all the places where you get juice in life and you don't know it. And then the disciplines of engagement was, here's, where you, here's how you plug your body into these more ancient disciplines. The whole point of a discipline, by the, by the way, Pat, as you noted, is so it doesn't feel like a discipline. We actually... I know you, you enjoy going to the gym and getting a good workout. Right. That's the point where you actually enjoy fasting. You enjoy silence and solitude properly practiced. Now here's where I've sort of grown and my imagination has been widened in this. It is very difficult to sustain these things without a sustaining local church or group of believers who understand the mystical, the spiritual, the what Taylor calls the enchanted background that gives rise to the necessity for disciplines. A, a, a church that understands you're not just taking a chunk of bread and some grape juice on Sunday, but you are you are honoring, you actually recognize why Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no place with me. A church that understands that the Eucharist actually is something that if not rightly taken can kill you, can make you sick. 
who doesn't think that view is Fruit Loops, who understands that the sacraments are the centerpiece of the service and the best, the best use of the best practice of worship in the word is worship that uh, I believe um, William, his name will come there, not William Tennant. But the wor worship, rightly understood, the singing and what have you, is the cultivation of a good conscience. Hence, so I, I have dear great difficulty singing most of the songs I hear today because they're over their top and exuberance, which is not true of my life. Mm. Oh, Lord, I love you with all my heart. You start to sing that and you mar, you scar your conscience without knowing it. You scar it in terms of what's called the arrogant conscience. And if anyone ever suggests maybe you don't, you go, don't tell me what I done. I mean, don't talk to me that way. You just throw the hand of, of uh, you know, show me the hand. Because uh, that's what happens in worship. And the word, I think, is more properly understood as what are called, um, not sermons, which really did develop a lot of it out of the Enlightenment, a, a lengthy lecture that uh, McGilchrist in one of his uh, recent talks is always punctuated by all these bullet points, which just takes a life right out of it. And instead is a homily. And a homily is more to widen the imagination than to be a data dump. And uh, there's, there's skillful eight to nine to 10 minutes, pictures. Because a picture, first of all, is worth a thousand words, but they also understand, well, Louise Cowan, as she put it, faith is a certain widening of the imagination. I love that phrase. Louise Cowan is a um, professor at the University of Dallas. Faith is a certain widening of the imagination. Hence, Dallas Willard, uh, not, uh, C.S. Lewis, good little book. We'll find a reference for it, it's escaping me right now. But as he, as he put it, imagination actually precedes information. Imagination, he put it, is the locus of meaning. And the information is the locus of truth. Truth is vital, but it doesn't mean much unless it's placed in the right background. So fasting is absolutely right. It's true. Why do so few practice it? Because it is meaning less. Yeah. And so you've mentioned silent solitude and fasting multiple times. And that, that even, even outside of Lent is a healthy, regular yeah. set of practices. Um, so I think Lent is probably a great on-ramp to practice those if they've never been practiced before. Are there, uh, is, is Lent, is, is there something unique about the Lenten season for you with those practices, or is that, are they just a continuation for you? Yeah, they really have just become a continuation. Sure. So the, I mean, yeah. So. No, that makes sense. So, so something unique about Lent then for, maybe your average listener could be that point in time in which you decide to try some of these, these disciplines of abstinence being silence, solitude and fasting. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I think there'd be a, a humongous uh, benefit um, because uh, if you say we don't have dessert, human nature says you're going to fixate on that for 40 days longing for Easter where you can rip the chocolate ears off that bunny and feel in your body this, oh, <laughs> we're back to the good life. <laughs> and you want to instead, I mean, just think of it, Pat, if you got a free 40-day membership to a gym and you went every day saying, I cannot wait for this thing to be over. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense, and it's, I think it's fitting. I've had a couple of conversations now talking about Lent and, and what to do for Lent, and it's come up 
the difference between doing something that's more of a maybe a traditional spiritual discipline or even something that's more giving up in general so that would fall in line with fasting sure or even abstinence but um the difference between that and just a healthy practice for example you'll hear um i'm giving up sugar for lent or i'm giving up certain foods or things along those lines that are uh, you could argue well that's it's more of a health practice or something along those lines um but i've i've often said yeah but so what you know i mean maybe maybe lent's actually just a good time to pick up that practice even if it yeah. is a practice that you you probably ought to be doing year round lent mm-hmm. is sort of that good marker in time to to jump into that and i think it fits what you're saying here too when it comes to spiritual disciplines as well yeah if you feel it you're pretty good at the disciplines of abstinence then pick up the disciplines of engagement and so uh, lent can be uh, i'm going to have a discipline of an hour of prayer every day i'm going to here's one i think especially helpful in time of covid is the discipline of service that's one of the disciplines ancient disciplines uh where you say uh if you live in this area, I just happen to know, I happen to live with a woman who is part of the leaders of a food pantry. And um, you want to serve? Hey, mm-hmm. we got a lot of places for you. So uh, I often joke, I've told this story before, but as a pastor, I gave a, almost an award-winning series on service. <laughs> and uh, people still write me and say, oh, I listen to that all the time. No one actually had to serve at a leadership center where we, we developed uh, Maryland's Easter shore, Eastern Shore. And we had trouble finding work. And I had to, I was a waiter because I had a very nice dining and the rest. And I was just racing back and forth. And this little punk 20 some kid sitting there going to Harvard, raised his glass of wine and says, Hey, how many, a little more red wine? Well, I didn't know squat about service. I wanted to tell that young punk where he could put his glass of wine. And I remember going in the kitchen saying, you don't know squat about service. Mm-hmm. And um, as the Lord is often the case and not always, he's absolutely right. And when I, uh, I think it's possible I will come to eternity that uh, the best thing that's happened in COVID, now we're going into our 12th month, is this discipline of service of people often saying, I have a group of friends, and they say, let's get together Friday morning for this and that. And I say, you know, for a long period of time, I can't join you guys. I, we have to go pack chicken for tomorrow night's pop-up pantry. And we did it in searing heat and freezing cold. And I'm, and uh, there's a part of me on Friday morning goes, uh, this is crap. We're doing it next to a big old freezer truck where we had to dispose of all the trash and the chicken juice and all that. And they said, don't throw in the woods because there's homeless people living there in the woods. We're behind there. We're, behind this, we're in a shopping center behind a series of stores where the grease traps Sometimes overflow and the rest, and I'm going, I've never seen this world. And then people say, hey, what, let's go here. Let's go to the beach. This area. Work in a pop-up pantry. Now, this has been for me a discipline of service. And I've come to the point now, I love it. But, yeah, about eight months into it, we find generally we get people to volunteer for a day, maybe two weeks, maybe... And um, I get it. Off a joke. If I didn't sleep with Kathy, I probably wouldn't be there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've gotten to know some really wonderful people. Uh, and uh, Alex. And we were sweeping out the, this big semi the other day. And we are just talking about throwing a big dinner for those who, the small group of people who come week in and week out. And they love it. And some of these older people I've met, even with COVID, uh, I had this one uh, sweet white-haired lady, and she goes, you know, this is the highlight. This has become the highlight of my week. 
and they're giving up their weekend. Can't go to the beach and want to rest because they find serving these sometimes upwards of 500 families that come through and the amount of time it takes to set it up and the amount of time it takes to serve and keep social distancing and then the amount of time it takes to tear it all down and clean up all the outside. That's a discipline and that is a discipline of service that my wife has nailed long before I am beginning to learn through discipline. You could do that over Easter. And uh, the discipline of too many of us, and I am a, yes, obviously I'm white, evangelical Catholic, little c Catholic, universal church bride. Our main discipline, as Robert Putnam pointed out many years ago, is check writing. That's our service. Now, <laughs> as a recipient of those, I'm not poking anyone in the eye. But Lent could be a discipline of service. And you'll find out if you do that, oh my goodness, these people live practically next door. I am ensconced in this safe little white neighborhood. I have no idea. Oh my gosh. I've never gone to this day. I'm not talking about come in, stop in every once in a while and do what you want to do because you enjoy and get a kick out of it and then you kind of pat yourself in the back saying, what a lovely selfless person I am. It's slinging chicken boxes that leak all over your shoes and you sling them out of a truck. Not sling them, but I mean, it's moving pallets, tons of food and diapers and this, and just finding you got to take three ibuprofen going in. And when you go home, you got to completely clean up and you're exhausted. And you are learning. It's the trade of service that is entering your body, as one writer put it. And it is exhausting until it becomes, if you stick with it, exhilarating. Well, I ain't there yet, but I have seen a difference. It's a discipline. My wife knows far more on this than I do. So I ought to say no more because you're listening to someone who is learning the trade. She more embodies the trade of service. And that is one of the disciplines.